0: Jesus cleanses the temple, part two. We looked at part one last week, when Jesus did the physical act of the cleansing, and this week we're going to look at his response to the Jews who came and asked him, on what authority do you do this? We were surprised as well that he was the only Jew in Jerusalem, in Judea, during Passover, the only one who had any sign of disgust at what was going on in the temple, which we thought was a little bit strange. And the disciples afterwards recognized that this is what the scripture said, zeal for your house will consume me. And that is in the same verse of the psalm or the same context of the psalm that says, I'm a foreigner to my own family. And we said, well, you know, this is is quite a, a sad story of the Jewish people. Their own Messiah is described as a foreigner to them, as a stranger. Why is he the only one with zeal for his house? And so here we have Jesus, the most faithful man to ever live, doing something about the mistreatment of the temple. And we see his disciples catching a wake-up as well. Clearly he is a stranger to his own people. And so this evening we're going to deal with, uh, obviously, if he had to do something like cleanse a temple courtyard of all these hundreds of animals and overturn the money changers tables, he's going to have a little bit of a, well, what are you doing? Who are you? And that's what we see tonight in John 2, and we're looking at 18 to the end, 25. Now, if we see the Jews in John's gospel, we can safely assume that the Jews refers to the religious elite, probably the Pharisees or the Sadducees, and it refers to the, the, the Jew, you know, the, the archetypal kind of Jew, the religious elite, the, pro, the um, pedigree. Uh, we're not talking about just general people. Most of the time we're talking about the religious elite. These are people who are very faithful to the Jewish religion, especially to their oral traditions. And uh, they want to know what's cracking in John's Gospel, especially when they t- speak to Jesus. Anyways. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? So they want a sign to prove his authority, which is a bit strange. He just cleansed the temple anyways. (laughs) Jesus answered them, destroy the sanctuary and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build the sanctuary and you will raise it up in three days but he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now that just means he didn't need anybody to tell him about what was going on in the hearts of people, because he knows the hearts of people. Amen. Father God, as we look at your word this evening, I pray that you'll give us clarity and that your spirit will light up your word for us, that you'll open our hearts and our ears to what you have to teach us and say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So from verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you have? And like I said, come on. (laughs) He just cleansed the temple. He took time to fashion a whip. Remember we spoke last week. This wasn't just a loony rage fueled frenzy. This was a calculated approach to what he was doing. So my response to these guys would have been, have you oaks not read the law? Do you not know who your God is? Do you not know what this temple is for? (laughs) Have you no shame? But that wasn't Jesus' response. He said something a bit different, which we'll get to. But the point is, we see that Jesus was doing something righteous. To them, they couldn't spot that that was righteousness, which is sad in itself because they were supposed to be God's chosen people. They were the people of Revelation. So how could they not spot that this was righteousness? They wanted to see a sign for the authority on which he performed this righteousness. You know, and doesn't that sound like our world in some senses? Righteousness according to our standards, not righteousness according to God's standards. Now, the Jewish religion held oral tradition at the same level or a greater level than the Torah. You know, often they'd say, well, the oral traditions explain the Torah. But in many cases, we know that this was just a legalization, a very uh, rigid, legalistic, human way of doing what God had told them to do. And it wasn't doing what God had told them to do. It was doing what they wanted to do. They had lost their religion of Yahwism. And so when somebody does something righteous according to God, but that righteousness doesn't match up with man's standards, then we have this question of on whose authority do you do that? People take issue with transgressions against their standard of righteousness. My standard of righteousness is we all need to sit very politely with our legs crossed and our hands on our knee and we must wear a hat to church and a suit and a tie And if you don't do that, well, then you're not being very righteous. On whose authority do you come into church with short pants and slops? Why did you record so much irregular expenditure in your books? Who said you could do that? Why did you give that hungry boy some food? Who said you could do that? Why did you not tell a little lie to get out of that situation? Why do you have such a problem with same-sex marriage? Why do you have such a problem with wearing shorts and slops to church? Are these things of God or things of man? Or is there an overlap and where I don't agree with the things of God, well, that becomes my standard. You know, the Bible's outdated. Have you heard that before? This doesn't matter anymore. You know, this was for a specific time. Now, didn't, Jesus didn't say this, but his attitude might have been something similar to what we see in Luke 12, 54 to 56. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rise, crowds rather, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. You hypocrites! You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Talking about him being there as their Messiah. And it sounds like a deep question about authority and whose authority do you do this? But at the end of the day, it's as simple as a question of loyalties. Are we loyal to our sinful nature? Are we loyal to the things of the flesh? Are we loyal to the world? Or are we loyal to God? Are we loyal to our new nature in Christ? Are we loyal to God's kingdom? So what was the reason? Was the reason because you were satisfying the desires of your sinful nature? Oh, and I needed to lie about taking my co-worker's orange juice from the fridge. Because if I didn't lie about that, there would have been a scuffle in the office. And according to man's standards, it's best just to keep peace. Or was the reason because you have a new nature that's intentional about being born more like Christ and so you're not going to tell a lie no matter how small it is because you know that's wrong. So I told the truth about drinking his orange juice because lying is a sin and I'm not going to partake in that. I'm not going to willingly do something sinful when I profess to be a born again believer. Now keeping the peace might seem righteous on earth but is telling a lie righteous to God. Keeping the status quo and the peace at the temple might have been righteous to the Jews, but was the perversion of worship happening there righteous in God's eyes? It wasn't. And Jesus came and sorted it out. And like I said last week, Jesus was the perfect man without sin. So he must have been the perfect faithful man as well. Had perfect faithfulness to God. So when you see something like this happen, it's not, again, it's not an outburst of anger, of undirected anger. There's righteousness behind this. He didn't sin. He never did anything out of character. He never did anything out of perfect faithfulness to God. And so we can see that by doing this, he's doing something righteous. He had to sort it out. Anyway, so what was this sign? Jesus answered them in verse 19, destroy the sanctuary and I'll raise it up. This statement from Jesus declares divine authority and divine supremacy. He was talking about himself. Destroy this sanctuary, his body, and in three days, I, him, will raise it up. The Greek tense there is an aorist active imperative. Now that's a big word. But what it means is it describes a past action. Destroy. Now the imperative is a command. And the verb there too is a second person. So you. Something like you have destroyed. But you have must (laughs) destroyed. Destroyed. Now think of Revelation 13 verse 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. It's been happening. They've been destroying the sanctuary. Go back to our prologue. John 1, 10, 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those those who were his own did not receive him. Since the fall, we in our natural fallen states have been rejecting God. We've been destroying his word and righteousness and his favor. We've been destroying the sanctuary that is Jesus. Now, that's humankind in general. Jesus was speaking to the Jews here, speaking to his own people. And we see, they destroyed him to the point that when God came down, they crucified him. Their own God. Was Jesus against the temple? No. Jesus is God. God told them to build the temple. But Jesus is looking beyond the temple here. He's looking at worship. He's looking at authentic worship. What was the temple for? The temple was there to sacrifice, make atonement for sins. The temple was there for God's dwelling place on earth. The temple was there so that the high priest once a year could go into the innermost sanctuary and be in God's presence. But Jesus was looking beyond that. They destroyed true worship of Yahweh. And Jesus came to remedy it. Jesus is our reconciler to God, not the temple in Jerusalem. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. You've been destroying the temple. And you're going to destroy this temple, speaking of his body. But in three days, I, Jesus, will raise it up. 1 Peter 2, 4-5. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. No man could ever claim to raise himself from the dead, but Jesus did. And by doing so, he effectively declared that he would defeat death forever. I will raise. Jesus declaring he will emerge victorious over death. And replace the temple. The temple acted as man's reconciler to God, but the temple was never sufficient. Jesus came as a perfect sacrifice, the perfect reconciler to God. And he did that in rising victorious over the grave. He, later on in the scriptures we read that Father God had a part and the Holy Spirit raised him. But that's the beauty of the triune God. God raised himself from the dead. All three persons were involved. The Jews wanted a sign of whose authority he could do righteousness or do these things, and Jesus basically said, Watch me rise from the dead. I am God. What sign do you have? There he was. Because he is the authority, he is God. He is ultimate authority, ultimate supremacy. That's the statement that he was making here. You've heard this before. The word for temple there is naos. It refers to the sanctuary. So it wasn't the outer courts. Jesus cleared the animals from the outer courts of the temple. But now he's talking about the house, the inner sanctuary, the place of divine manifestation. The root word in the Greek comes from something meaning to inhabit. By saying this, Jesus declares that his body is superior to the temple. He is divine manifestation. One drop of his sinless blood could never be matched by all the millions of sacrifices that took place at the temple. The hundreds of sacrifices that took daily at the temple. See, through Christ we no longer require a specific place to worship. Authentic worship can happen anywhere. Jesus cleansed the temple And by cleansing the temple, he demonstrated that the same work has been done in our hearts. He's cleansed our hearts. He's prepared our hearts for true, authentic worship of God. Just as he meant in the temple. He has made our bodies the house of the Holy Spirit. And we can have relationship with God and worship him here and now through the Spirit. But, like I said, as Jesus demonstrated in cleansing the temple, our hearts need cleansing by him too. We need, we still need a temple. We need a reconciler. We need to go to a place where God dwells. But in Christ, God dwells in us by his spirit. Praise God that He is the one who cleanses our hearts. Imagine if we still needed to go to the temple in Jerusalem with your sheep and oxen. And even that wouldn't cover, not even a fraction, the tiniest fraction of what Christ did for us. Amen. Verse 22 So when He was raised, the disciples remembered what the Scripture said, what He had said, and they believed. Now, obviously, they didn't know that he was going to die and be raised at this point. However, John informs us that they remembered what Jesus had said, and they believed. A good pattern. Remembering the word, believing the word. Excuse me, what did Moses tell the Israelites to do in Deuteronomy? Speak about it when you're at home, when you're walking, when you rise up, when you lay down. Put it on your doorposts. Speak continually about it, remember it, and believe it, which also means do it. Yes, they had the issues, these disciples, but throughout John's gospel, we see how they interact to the word, or with the word, and respond to it. They did this, and they believed. They did that, and they believed. Jesus said this later on. They remembered he said that. They believed. The wedding in Cana. Jesus did that, and they believed. Now some might think that there's a specific scripture, which is from Psalm 16. For you will not forsake my soul to show, you will not give your holy one over to see corruption. So there's a verse that we could pinpoint. But there's a pattern that we see from the disciples. Something that we could describe as Christocentric. And that means reading the scripture through the lens of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we take scripture out of its original context and then try to fit Christ into it. You know, then we end up with things like, well, Jonah and the big fish, the big fish must have been Christ because he's the Savior. Or Christ was the literal wood of the ark that kept Noah and his family safe. Doesn't mean that. It means that when we read scripture, we read it through the lens of Christ. We we read it knowing the end of the story. This principle is championed by Dr. Christopher Pepler, who says that the Old Testament is why Jesus said and did. The Gospels are what Jesus said and did. And the New Testament is how the disciples in the early church applied What Jesus said and did. Now I don't want to get into the nitty and gritties of all of this. The point is that God's work is connected. The Torah and the prophets point to Christ. Christ points us to God. And I think we see this here with the disciples. His disciples remembered that Jesus said this. They remembered the scriptures. And they believed and that's a pattern we need to imitate in our lives. We have all the word to us. We have the whole revelation to us. But we need to remember it. We need to read it. We need to see Christ in it, not disconnect it. You know, have you ever just prayed, Oh God, please, I need a, a scripture verse for today. And you take your Bible. And you land there. And you go and have a look. And we read that Noah was a man <laughs> who was righteous in God's sight. Okay, what does that mean for me today? Am I, am, am I righteous? Okay, I'm going to be fine then. All right, that's what I need. But maybe that's not. Let me try again. And you land on here and you read about the psalmist saying, bash the baby's heads against the rock. And you're thinking, oh, no, that's not for me today. <laughs> the point is reading the word and knowing where, that it points to Christ. So you read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we read John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the world was made through him. Anyways, so that's the point of that one. The disciples remembered and believed. Then we get to the end here, verse 23 to 25, he was at Jerusalem, or in Jerusalem during Passover, many believed in his name on account of the signs and wonders, but he didn't commit himself to them, he didn't entrust himself to them. And that's because these people believed in the miracles. They didn't believe in the miracle worker. They were fancied by the miracles. And it gave them a superficial faith. A faith light, if we can call it that. They believed simply because he did signs. Now the signs were not wrong. And signs are not wrong. But the people used the signs to tickle their own fancies And not see God in them. And this is a big problem today because everybody wants signs and wonders. I want to see my dream manifesting here. I want to see my faith on full display because I've prayed over this business venture and it must succeed. I've prayed over this church and it must succeed. I've prayed for that new Mercedes Benz and I must have it. I've prayed for a new pastor because the other one's boring. Now he must come and do fairy dust in the vents or whatever. Nobody wants to do anything with the signs and wonders other than be amazed at them. Because it tickles us, because it's fun to see. It's like a fancy lights show. Have you ever been to a fancy light show or, or fireworks? But specifically these ones that tell stories. You know, you go there and you, you're not interested in the story. It's just the lights that are, ooh, very pretty. And that's what it's like. J. Campbell Morgan said, If belief is nothing more than admiration for the spectacular, it will create in multitudes applause. But the Son of God cannot commit himself to that kind of faith. And that's true. If all we admire is the spectacular things that go on, yes, we're going to get a big applause. Yes, you'll get a large following. I mean, just... Go look at some Christian television programs and channels. And even on YouTube, you can find a lot there too. And we've spoken about this many times. But these people have massive ministries. You're talking about churches that pack a couple couple 10,000 people in every Sunday. Plus the extras that watch online and the YouTube views. And it is the spectacular kind of faith produces applause. And cheer and loyalty to the spectacular. But Jesus cannot commit himself to that kind of faith. Doesn't mean Jesus needs to commit to us, it means he's not going to work with our faith. Maybe more appropriately, we are not going to work with him if that's our kind of faith. All truth, it is better to have no faith than this kind of faith light. As soon as the pixie dust and emotional music and the fancy lights disappear, what happens? You disappear. As soon as the spectacular disappears, all those who are faithful to the spectacular disappear as well. Heaven and earth will fade away, but my words will remain forever. Now this is not the kind of worshipper that God is seeking. And we see that demonstrated here. Jesus did not commit himself to them. Jesus didn't make a ministry with them. Jesus didn't become their pastor or the fancy prophet or the, the, the person walking with lots of disciples behind him. He could have had all the fame and reputation and even fortune that he wanted. But he didn't commit himself to them because they had a faith light. They were interested in the miracles, not in the miracle worker. He did not amass large following and followings and keep them hooked on the opium of miracles. He did not tickle their fancies and lust after their loyalties. He did not depend on man's approval. And that's what we see unfortunately, in the church today. Too many churches, local churches and pastors and ministers are depending on man's approval. And that's true of the radical charismatics as much as it's true uh, of the radical reformed. Because if we don't have man's approval, nobody's going to come to church and listen to the word. If we don't have man's approval, we're going people are going to get bored when they're listening to me. If we don't have man's approval, we're not going to get tithes to support the ministry. So there is a genuine concern here. But where's the heart? Are we looking for man's approval or are we looking for God's approval? When we have God's approval, these other things fall into place. This is also a sobering reminder of God's divine knowledge. He knew the people. He knew their hearts. Imagine being told of you, Jesus didn't come and have lunch with you like he did with Zacchaeus. Because he knew your heart. He knew that you had a faith light. Nobody has to bear witness concerning you. Nobody has to go to God and say, Oh, you know, this oak's a good man. I think you should, you know, give him a little bit of faith. Give him a little bit of grace. He's almighty God. He knows. So the question is, are you a sincere worshiper that adores the God behind the miracles? And not the miracles themselves. Do you want miracles or the God who does miracles? Let Jesus cleanse your heart as he did in the temple. And worship in the temple of his Holy Spirit. He is our great reconciler. And we can worship him authentically anywhere and everywhere. And we are told to live a lifestyle of worship and praise. Amen. So to conclude for this last evening service of the year, I've got two take-home lessons. The first one is this. Jesus is the ultimate sign and authority. He enables true worship. Without him, we do not have a temple to worship God. And let us remember that. Next time your pastor tells you to drink snake poison or go and do 20 Hail Marys. (laughs) Jesus is the ultimate sign and authority. Do you want to know about how to respond in this situation? Go read what Jesus did. Go read about his character and apply it. If you want to know the father, you have to go through the son. If you want to know who God was in the Old Testament, look at who Jesus is in the New Testament. And then secondly, don't get caught out with superficial faith. Follow the signs to the master. We've got all the signs in the book that we need. We've got his whole Bible with us. We've His whole word to us now. If you really need somebody to come in here and perform a miracle before you believe in God, well then, I question your faith. I question your intention for being here. And I might go so far as to accuse you of being there for the spectacular you want to see the, the miracle of somebody's leg growing out again or you want to see somebody speaking in tongues and another one translating it because it's the fancy and spectacular. All while you're holding a Bible in your hand. You've got everything there. Remember that. Don't get caught out with a superficial faith.